Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I just got back from a trip where Cassie and I, my wife, we were able to celebrate our 15-year wedding anniversary. We were able to go over to Greece and to Paris. It was a wonderful trip. Uh, tremendous to be able to go there. One of the things that I learned, and kind of as I was looking at our gospel reading today, is uh, the Greeks really emphasize the power of doors, specifically like entryways, like they're really big. They see the significance of going from the outside to the inside, that kind of portal, right? For instance, at the Parthenon, which is the big, you know, you've seen postcards of it and stuff up on the hill in Athens. Uh, they say that the entryway was one of the most significant things about the building, that it was the, these tall columns with this enormous ceiling. They painted the ceiling this beautiful bright blue and had these gold stars all over it. They put these ornate sculptures all around. It was covered in artwork because they wanted the whole thing to be very evocative. They wanted it to be very powerful, right? And, and Israelites weren't all that different. Uh, Jerusalem was a walled city, and so the various gates that they had, they had names, they have traditions, they have all sorts of things associated with them. So when you see Jesus in our gospel reading refer to, I am the gate, you could forgive the people listening for perhaps thinking this is something big, this is something grand, perhaps even something political in regard to Jesus's power, right? But Jesus isn't talking about the big gates and the big entryways and the monumental things. Jesus is looking at rural Israel, at shepherds and sheep pens. And those sheep pens in rural Israel would have been a fence, maybe a wall, uh, that you would bring, actually multiple different flocks would come together, different shepherds could bring their flock into that area, right? And some archaeologists have found that even those sheep pens, some of them didn't even have an actual gate. There was just an opening to which maybe you're wondering, if you're somebody who has done some farm work, how you're keeping the sheep in when you do that? How are you keeping the predators out of the pen? Well, what they have found is the shepherds would literally set up their bedding in that opening in the fence. They would lay down. That was where they would sleep, literally putting their bodies, their lives, between their flock and danger. So when Jesus says, I am the gate, He's saying, I'm willing to lay my life down, to put my body on the line to protect and care for my people. As Christians, we, of course, see the significance of that. But today, I don't really want to focus on the gate or even really the shepherd. I want to look today at the sheep. What does it mean to be part of a flock? What does it mean to be welcomed into a sheep pen? Before we go into that, let's go to our God in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this chance to come together and worship today. Lord, I thank you for the chance to share your message. Lord, let it be your message. Move me out of the way. I, I humble myself before you and recognize that, that I am nothing compared to you. I pray that all that I can do is speak the words that you inspire. I pray that you speak to me. I pray that you speak through me and that everybody who listens will be humble enough to submit themselves to your Holy Spirit. Lord, let your spirit be at work in this place. In your name, amen. Special welcome to those of you joining online. For those of you here, if you didn't know, we do uh, video record even just the sermon part. We do the whole service as well, but just the sermon. We also have just an audio version only. Uh, you can find those on our YouTube as well as our website, cmlhouston.org, if you want to share anything 
that I have to say today, I guess. Um, but there's something interesting that I've noticed in kind of going through scripture and looking at our current culture that we miss out on. And that is that the early church, which we saw in our Acts reading, which was read earlier, the early church really had a significant conflict that they were trying to deal with, a strong tension that they were constantly trying to balance. And that is the question of Judaism. The question of, are we still Jewish or not? Is Christianity, is this the way, as it was called at the time, the following of Jesus, who, who some believe to be the Messiah, is that just a continuation of, of this Israelite life that we've been following for so long? Because the question becomes, well, hold on, for Israelites, being part of this, it was more ethnic than anything. It was almost political, right? That's why Israel had actual political enemies. That's why they could say, well, well, there's us, and then there's them. That's how they had this word Gentile. That really just means everybody who's not Jewish, not Israelite, right? And so there was this, this question of, okay, uh, do we still follow the same Jewish rules? Do we, uh, what does it look like for somebody from the outside to come in? Because that's not really something they do. Like, the temple in Jerusalem didn't have an outreach missions board. They weren't saying, okay, how do we get more people? That wasn't their thing. The only way to get more people was to have more kids. And so suddenly we see in our Acts reading that their numbers are growing every single day. And this is a massive conflict. Because what they're used to is, we're us. And we've always been us. And we always will be us. And they'll always be them. What does it look like when they are part of us? And Jesus comes along and he flips this whole thing. Suddenly there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no uh, slave or free. There is no man. There is no woman. That all are welcome into the message of Christianity. And they're struggling with this. And I'd like to think that we are past this sort of division, but we're not. It's, it's like it's prone within us to be drawn towards division, right? You have Jew and Gentile, you have Catholic and Protestant, and you have all the different denominations of, of Protestant, but then you leave the church behind, you have Republican and Democrat, right? You have the different races, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, uh, those who don't like the word Hispanic and prefer Latina, like you have all these different, uh, different divisions that we create. Longhorns and Aggies, right? That's a big one. Californians, Texans. All these different divisions because we are prone to this idea of us versus them. And so when Jesus is saying all are welcome, we kind of struggle with that. Because historically, if I were to ask you, hey, what does a Christian look like? You probably picture something in your mind. So maybe somewhat different, but you have a, an idea. Some of that comes from historical, where different Christian nations have gone through and conquered the world under the guise of missions, because missionaries would enter into a place, and one of the first things they would do is teach their native language, right? If you're coming from Britain, you're teaching English. If you're coming from Rome, you're teaching Latin, right? You're teaching all these different things. But here's the thing. Um, I'm pretty sure there wasn't a single English word in the Bible. There's not. Maybe this is a surprise to you. The Bible wasn't written in English. There's not a single one. And it could be argued that there isn't even a single blonde person in the whole Bible. Could be argued. 
We don't know that for sure. I do know for sure there was no English, and yet here all these missionaries were entering into places and teaching English. They were teaching them uh, what kind of clothes to wear, what kind of buildings to live in. This is what it means to be a Christian, but it's not. It's not. The Bible doesn't speak in English. It speaks in all sorts of different languages. Originally it was Greek and Hebrew and some Aramaic. The Bible doesn't say you have to wear your Sunday finest to church. There isn't a single suit and tie in the Bible. In fact, John the Baptist, one of the most significant people, was noted for not wearing fine clothing. So we, we struggle with this. But here's the thing. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be different. It's okay that we have all these different things, right? I go back to the body of Christ. Some are an eye, some are a toe, some are an elbow. Those are all important things. It's like this. So like I said, Cassie and I, we got the chance to go to Greece and to Paris. And boy, those are two very different cultures. They are. Uh, even though both have a significant history, they really like their, their antiquities and things like that. But when it comes to sitting down at dinner, very different. See, the Greeks, um, they, they call you in from the street. Come on, like, come on in. And they're loud. They're boisterous. They're welcoming you. Sit down. It's opa. Everything's great. They bring you the food. Uh, not a single restaurant that we sat at didn't give us either free dessert or a free shot of alcohol. Sometimes both. Those were the good restaurants. And they were just so welcoming and a little loud. But then you go to Paris. <laughs> and they have, we'll call it practiced indifference. Like the national gesture of France is a shrug. Like you would ask, is this any good? They go, Meh. should I order this? Uh, is the train still running? Meh. They just, it's like they don't really care if you're there or not. And it can be a little offsetting, but then you start to think about the cultures. You start to examine, okay, why is that? Why are they that way? Because for Parisians, going to dinner, that's your evening. That's it. That's what you're doing. You're going to go with a couple friends. You're going to sit down. You're going to go through a bottle or six of wine. You're going to enjoy some, some fine bread and some good cheese. And you're going to be there for hours. <laughs> some of you are like, oh, no. Honey, book a trip to France. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> and the whole idea is because you're there for hours, it'd be really annoying if the waiter kept coming over and checking on you. So instead, they kind of stay back and let you do your thing, and if you need them, you kind of wave them over, right? Whereas in Greece, pretty much every restaurant we went into was family-owned. The waiters were all related. So not only were you walking into their family home, in many cases, it was right above the restaurant, it was also, you were then part of the family. They welcomed you in. It was loud. It was exciting. You felt like you were part of the family. Compare that to America, by the way, where the whole thing is, this is the land of plenty, and there's plenty more where that came from, right? Where they say, hey, you want a refill? You want another basket of fries? You want a bigger mound of onion rings? Like, okay, cool. We can make that happen. Oh, it's your birthday. We're going to get all the waiters together. We're going to sing a song. The French would hate you. <laughs> that's just, that's the way it works, right? But that's, that's the culture. And you have to say, okay, even though they were coming at it from different ways, in the end, they all just wanted you to enjoy your meal. Enjoy your time breaking bread. Enjoy your time with your family, with your friends, even by yourself. They wanted you to enjoy it. That was the purpose. That's the church. See, we may have preferences that are different. We may have practices that are different. We have different languages. We have a Vietnamese church that's meeting right down there, right now. And I guarantee you their system is a little different than ours. 
We, in our early service, had our choir sing, and they did a great job, but I bet if you took that choir and you picked them up and you put them in a traditionally black Southern Baptist church, they're going to be a little confused, right? And yet, both of those choirs from those different communities are still seeking to do the same purpose, to use their gifts of song to praise God, to use that as their gift in their offering. I have some in the early service who have made the comment that they saw me preaching without my robe and albon, and they said I wasn't dressed. Whereas I've had other people say, oh, when I see a pastor in that kind of thing, I have a trauma response. It's creepy. See, we have different practices, but we are unified in our purpose. We are unified in why we are doing what we do. And again, it doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter what you're doing. We are unified in our purpose. So the question is, what's the purpose? Well, what are we doing all this for? Is it to make ourselves feel better? Well, if you look at pretty much every mission statement of every church out there, all the good ones at least, they're all going to kind of bounce around the same area, right? There's always going to be three things reflected in their mission statement. Up, in, out. Okay? And, and that is essentially your relationship with God, your relationship and care for one another, and then outreach into the community to share hope, to share love, whatever. I've heard it said, love God, love people, serve the world. I've seen different building bridges beyond. Here's our mission statement here. I had to write it down. It's a little wordy. Being and making disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. I've used the phrase building or growing community through the love of God. That is our purpose to build a stronger relationship with our God through worship, through Bible study, through prayer, right? Through community, and then helping each other out. That's what we see in our, our Acts reading, isn't it? How was the church growing? What were the, the apostles, the disciples, what were they doing? They were caring for one another. They were there for one another. They recognized that this is a significant community. Those of you who join online exclusively, unfortunately, you're missing out on part of church. And so I would challenge you, if you're not local, find a local church because this community should be together. And then there's the aspect of reaching out into the community, not doing so so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but doing so out of compassion, doing so to the word of God so that hope in the gospel can spread. Now, I've got to say, here at Christ Memorial, on, on those things, you're doing a pretty good job. We're doing all right. I have personally witnessed in Bible studies where somebody has offered a prayer request and said, I'm really struggling with this. And literally people open up their wallets to help them. I've seen this personally. I've seen as we embrace people coming in, I've seen as we seek to, to go and, and partner with organizations like Family Point, like the Rampers who have people who, who suddenly can't go upstairs in their own home. And so they're able to come and build those ramps for them. All the different things that we contribute to, memorial assistance ministries, uh, the overseas missions, uh, Kristen Schmaltz, our missionary in Africa, the, the college missions that we have and ministries that we're working with. These things all are ways to reach out into the world, to grow together, to, to share compassion. That is the purpose by which we are gathered. But the struggle is this. Our purpose isn't for ourselves. Our purpose isn't about the sheep. Our purpose is the shepherd. It's recognizing that we are unified by our faith. We are brought together by what God has given us. We are brought together by the grace 
of God, that shepherd who would lay down his life and unify us, fill in that open space. That is what unifies us. We are brought together by the shepherd. Now, the struggle may be also this. The shepherd or the sheep won't always look like us. They won't always act like us or talk like us or dress like us. But it's not our responsibility to say who's in the sheep pen and who's not. We don't get to say which sheep come in and who don't. That's the shepherd's job. No, our job is to welcome them. Our job is to, to provide space for them, to help them to understand why we're there, about the, the safety and the security of the pen of the shepherd watching over us with compassionate care. That's the challenge that we have as the church. Yes, we want to build our relationship with God through study, through prayer. We want to care for one another. We should be a community that helps each other, yes. But we should always leave room for more sheep. We should always make sure that this is a place where people can come in and feel safe. People can come in and heal. People can come in and finally receive hope and love that this world says that they offer, but it withers away. No, the hope and the love that is found in Jesus Christ is like nothing else that the world offers. That's why we come to church. That's why we are here. So may we turn to the shepherd. May we follow the shepherd. I'm not the shepherd, by the way. Your shepherd isn't Tyler Moore or Jason Marino. Your shepherd isn't Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Your shepherd isn't all these people that you put bumper stickers on the back of your car and signs in your yard on. That's not your shepherd. The shepherd is the one who laid down his life for you because he knows you. He knows your name. There's something so powerful about the shepherd calling out his sheep by name. Remember Mary after Jesus died, she went to the tomb. She didn't recognize Jesus until he did what? Said her name. Christ calls your name. He beckons you. You are within that sheepfold. You are within his flock. He is our shepherd, and we have the courage and the humility to follow him, to make sure that others are welcome. That's the power of Christianity. That's what it means to be a sheep. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, welcome to the flock. Amen.